Hello, and welcome to the Otaku Komashi. Episode 3, Holic and Oma. Before I start talking about the show, I have a couple housekeeping points that I want to get out of the way. First, when you saw the name of this episode, you might have read the name of the show as XXX Holic. It's actually pronounced as Holic, and that's how I'm going to refer to it throughout the podcast. The XXX part is a Japanese punctuation convention that means fill in the blank. In English, we would communicate the same meaning by using a row of underscores. So when you see the title written out, just imagine those X's are actually underscores, and you'll remember that it's pronounced holic. Second, big thanks to listener Anna Michael for recommending this show to me. I do take requests, so feel free to slide into my DMs or email me at theotakufromagerie at gmail.com if there's a specific show or cheese that you'd like to hear me review. Okay, now we're ready to get on with the show. So, what is Holic about? The show follows the life of Watanuki Kimihiro, a boy who can see spirits, but who is also constantly haunted and sometimes even hunted by them. One day, while running away from a spirit that's trying to eat him, he happens upon a wish-granting shop, owned and operated by Yuko Ichihara, a dimensional witch. Watanuki's wish is that spirits would stop bothering him, and the price is that he has to work for Yuko at the shop until his debt is paid. The two other main characters in the show are classmates of Watanuki, Himawari, the girl he has a crush on, and Dolmeki, a guy who is his rival-ish. It's kind of a weird relationship. Holic was originally a manga written by Clamp, a four-woman team of artists and writers who have written a number of other series, including Chobits and Cardcaptor Sakura. They started publishing Holic in 2003, and the story ended eight years later in 2011. In 2013, Clamp restarted the story with Holic Ray, an alternate version slash retelling of the same story, which went on for three years before ending in 2016. An interesting thing about the manga is that, although it can be read as a standalone series, it was written to be read in conjunction with another series, Tsubasa Reservoir Chronicles, which Clamp was simultaneously publishing in a different magazine. Characters from each story cross over into the other one at various points, and familiarity with the plot of one provides important additional context for understanding events in the other. The Holic anime was produced by a pretty big animation studio called Production IG, whose other works have included Ghost in the Shell, Psychopaths, and notably Haikyuu. The first season of Holic aired in 2006, three years after the manga debuted, and a half-length second season aired in 2008. No additional TV episodes were made after that, but two separate two-episode DVD specials were released, one in 2009 and one in 2010. When Production IG was adapting the manga into an anime, they decided not to keep any crossover references to Tsubasa Reservoir Chronicles in the show. My guess is that made it easier to tell a more focused, streamlined story, but I suspect that those references were the diehard fans' favorite part of the manga, and so for people who were already familiar with the story, as 
probably many viewers of the show were, the lack of references to Tsubasa might have been disappointing. One of the things the animators did keep from the manga, though, was the minimalist and at times surreal art style, which is significantly different from any other anime that I've seen. Extras and crowd scenes are just gray outlines of people with no detail. There's a number of scenes set against static, stylized backgrounds rather than the actual environment that the characters are in. The character designs are also much simpler than in most other shows, with gangly limbs and almost caricatured movements. Because my mind is a product of Western culture, I saw the design as a cross between the elongated bodies of El Greco and the noodly appendages of Matisse. Clamp was of course actually referencing ukiyo-e, a type of Japanese woodblock printing that flourished between the 17th and 19th centuries, and is most well known in the West for the landscapes of Hiroshige and Hokusai. That's only a fraction of the full diversity of ukiyo-e, though. The paintings could portray a broad range of subjects, covering everything from fantasy and folklore to erotica. The proportions of humans and humanoids tend to be longer in ukiyo-e than in reality, hence the elongated bodies seen in Hollock. Ukiyo-e also tends to have a minimalist aesthetic with a somewhat flattened sense of perspective, and I think the art style of the anime is actually an effective adaptation of those artistic conventions. However, it is also possible that the animators were just trying to save money by cutting back on detail. For the sake of full disclosure, I should acknowledge that I initially found the art and animation jarring and kind of off-putting, and it took me several episodes to get used to it. I think part of that struggle was because most anime that's popular in the US takes more of a maximalist approach to animation, like Fire Force or My Hero Academia, and a kawaii, or at least visually appealing, approach to character design. Haikyuu and Free are the first that come to mind, but countless other shows have the same aesthetic. Hollick is on the complete opposite end of both of those spectra, with its minimalist style of animation and gangly, awkward-looking characters. Another part of my discomfort, though, is that I think the show at times is intentionally trying to make the audience feel uncomfortable. The spirits that chase Watanuki are these gross, fleshy, purple blobs of smoke. There are several scenes where characters reach in the direction of the camera, but the perspective doesn't change in the right way, so it looks like their hand is as big as their body, and it's very confusing and strange. There's also a lot of sound design choices that seem designed to be eerie or off-putting. One recurring song in the soundtrack sets an ascending whole tone scale in parallel minor thirds, on top of a disjointed but diatonic major harmony. Another episode features a tick-tock heartbeat. It's the sound of a ticking clock, but with the lub-dub rhythm of a heartbeat, and it uses that as background noise for several minutes, which is low-key stressful. So all of those things add up to make watching the show a little uncomfortable sometimes, which personally I think is kind of a fun, interesting experience, but it may not be for everyone. Another thing that I really liked about the show was that watching Hollick is like taking a guided tour through Japanese folklore and culture. The show introduces you to a bunch of different characters from Japanese mythology. Ami Warashi and Zashiki Warashi, a rain spirit and house spirit, 
There are Karasutengu, pesky bird spirits, Kuragitsune, a pipe fox, and that's just to name a few. One episode features a Hyakumonogatori Kaidankai, which is a kind of ghost story parlor game. Another one explains how to play Shiritori, which is a wordplay game that the characters in Toradora play at one point. Then there's another episode that actually got a little too far into the weeds, even for me, about how to play Mahjong. But the cool thing is that even when the characters are just playing a game, there's always something that ties it back in some way to Shinto spirituality or Japanese culture. Another really cool thing is that initially the show is only focused on the paranatural problems that people or spirits are struggling with. But as the show goes on, the issues start to take on a psychological tone as well, to the point that by the end of the first season, you almost start to question the magical elements of the show. Like, how much of this is real, and how much is just in Watanuki's head? Is Yuko actually a witch, or is she just a really good therapist? One of the ways that Hollick manages the introduction of all of these different characters and themes is by having a primarily episodic plot structure, rather than continuous. What that means is, the events in the show are presented as short, self-contained mini-stories that take just one or two episodes to resolve. It's a less common format in anime than a continuous plot structure, where every episode is advancing the plot of a single storyline that stretches over the whole season, if not the whole series. To give an example from live-action TV, typical American sitcoms like Friends or How I Met Your Mother have episodic plotlines, versus K-dramas or telenovelas, which usually have continuous plotlines. Hollick does a good job of weaving together each of its smaller stories into a coherent narrative, and it's successful at this because of the writer's attention to detail. The show makes references to events from previous episodes in a way that doesn't feel forced, as it sometimes did in Little Witch Academia, for example. And this contributes to a sense that each individual episode is still part of a larger story. Another technique they use is these subtle hints at the hidden potential of the characters. For instance, Watanuki, the protagonist, is this derpy, klutzy teenager, but other characters say things to him like, I can see why Yuko-san likes you so much. Or they'll say things about perfectly nice Himawari, the girl Watanuki has a crush on, like, oh, I don't think she's the lucky lady for you, or, ugh, how can you stand to even be near her? They're little comments that don't entirely make sense in the context of what the audience knows yet, but they clearly foreshadow future developments for each of the characters and make it feel like you're watching the start of a much longer epic. And this foreshadowing makes sense in the context of the manga, which lasted for eight years. But when I got to the end of the second season of the anime, and realized that was it. I was like, wait, what? That's where it ends? But I haven't had enough time with these characters. I haven't seen them grow and develop in the way that they're clearly supposed to. And it's not that there isn't any character development in the show, but it happens relatively slowly. And again, it very much feels like the writers were planning on having a lot more time to tell the story than they ended up getting. The first and second seasons end with big climactic events that have a significant impact on the characters, but in between those events there isn't that much character growth. The personalities also feel a little one-dimensional at first, and it takes a while for them to develop more complexity. 
again, I think this is because the writers were expecting to have to get a lot of mileage out of these characters, so they were trying to pace themselves, but that one-dimensionality can be a little annoying at times. That being said, yes, technically the characters don't have a lot of development in the show, but I don't think that's an entirely fair criticism, because the show just wasn't written to be only 37 episodes long. My personal gold standard for character development is Toradora, but I think that's not the best comparison here, because that show was written to be 25 episodes long and to be a self-contained story with a predetermined start and end. Instead, I've been re-watching Haikyuu in preparation for the newly released fourth season, and I actually think the pace of character development in Holic is pretty similar to Haikyuu. Kagayama first starts opening up in the second core of the first season, but not until then, and he's the only one. Tsukishima is still cold and distant, Yamaguchi barely has any screen time, and the big moments for Hinata at the special invitation camp and Shimizu's backstory don't happen until much later. Likewise, in Holic, although there's only one and a half seasons to compare to, I'd say Watanuki's development over that time is comparable to Kageyama's. So the rate of character growth is about the same for both shows, at one or two big moments and developments per season. I mentioned earlier that the writer's attention to detail helped make all of the foreshadowing more effective and got me invested in the story. There are two other ways that the writers bring the story to life. One is that when they did have character development moments, they do a really good job of showing how the characters are changing rather than just telling. So for example, Watanuki's relationship with Domeki, his rival-ish, changes over the course of the show. And there are moments where Watanuki does something or says something that's just a little bit different from his usual interactions. They're easy to miss, but if you're paying attention, you realize that those small differences actually reflect a big change in how he approaches the world, and it makes his character seem much more real and relatable. Another really effective moment that totally pulls you into the story is a scene at the end of the first season where the characters break the fourth wall, which means they address the audience directly. Now, breaking the fourth wall can be a really interesting and effective narrative technique, but it usually creates a sense of distance between the audience and the performers. If you had been imagining yourself as part of the world that's being portrayed, breaking the fourth wall forces you out of that fiction and reminds you that the world on stage or on screen is separate from your own. The really cool thing about how they do it in Holic is that it has the opposite effect. It doesn't create any distance and actually draws the audience in further. The way they set the scene up is so subtle that at first you don't even realize that the characters are talking to you, but then, like an optical illusion, suddenly you see it, and it just works perfectly. Holic is a complex show that has a lot going on. I've said a lot of positive things about it, but I've also said some negative things. I'll leave my final verdict and recommendation until the end, but if I had to sum it up in two words, I'd say that it's an acquired taste. Now, I know some of you may still be wondering what the connection is between cheese and anime, and I admit the bridge between the two has maybe been a bit shaky on some previous episodes, but this time it's rock solid.
and has not only one, but two pillars of support. The first is a thematic relationship. I summarized Holic as an acquired taste, so I wanted a cheese that would have the same kind of vibe. I went to my local cheesemonger, Saxelby's, at Chelsea Market, and I asked for a cheese that would be kind of unpleasant at first, but the more you have it, the more you start to like it. The woman behind the counter said, okay, so it sounds like you're looking for a washed rind cheese, and she gave me three options, mild, medium, and barnyardy, which is actually a standard word used to describe cheese. I decided I wasn't quite ready for the full barnyard experience, so I went with the medium option, Oma, a raw cow milk cheese made by the Von Trapp farmstead. And if you're thinking, wait, Von Trapp as in the sound of music? You would be correct, which leads us into our second pillar of support, an historical relationship. So, the Von Trapp Farmstead is a cheesemaking facility in Waitsfield, Vermont, operated by brothers Sebastian and Dan Von Trapp. The name of the cheese, Oma, is the affectionate term for grandmother in German, and it's in honor of their own grandmother, Erika, who, along with her husband Werner, founded the dairy farm in 1959. Werner Von Trapp was in the original Von Trapp family singers and was portrayed as Kurt, the 11-year-old son, in the movie The Sound of Music. So, just to review, in case you're not familiar with the story, in 1926, Maria Kutschera was a nun in training at Nonberg Abbey in Salzburg, Vienna. She started working as a governess for the Von Trapp family, developed a close relationship with the seven Von Trapp children, and then ended up marrying their father, the widowed Georg Von Trapp. The couple later had three more children together. The whole family started singing and performing together. They became a popular touring show in the U.S. and Europe, but in the 1940s, they emigrated to the U.S. due to the outbreak of World War II and Germany's invasion of Austria. Maria wrote a memoir of their story in 1949 called The Story of the Trap Family Singers, which became the basis for the 1956 West German film The Trap Family, which was in turn the inspiration for the 1959 Rodgers and Hammerstein Broadway musical The Sound of Music, as well as its 1965 film adaptation starring Julie Andrews. So by now you're probably thinking, okay, so far so good but where does the anime come in? Well, in 1991, Nippon Animation, a Japanese anime studio, released its own 40-episode adaptation of Maria's memoir. And now today, 29 years later, here at the Otaku Fromagerie, I'm reviewing a cheese made by the descendants of Werner von Trapp, a man whose family story was the basis for an original anime. And if that's not a robust connection between anime and cheese, then, frankly, I don't know what is. But that's enough history. Now let's talk about how the cheese was made. As I mentioned earlier, Oma is a washed rind cheese. What that means is that during the aging process, the cheese is given weekly baths, usually in brine, but depending on the cheese, it may be beer, wine, or anything else the cheesemaker wants to use. The washing is done for several reasons. One is to keep the cheese hydrated. Since there isn't a wax rind to keep moisture in, 
it can evaporate and dry the cheese out. Washing also promotes the growth of good bacteria and helps them outcompete any unwanted species. Brevibacterium linens is the most common type used in washed rind cheeses, but many other species and genera can be used. A third reason is just to add flavor. Bathing a cheese in all of the aromatic and flavor compounds in wine, for example, is definitely going to impart a different flavor profile than if the cheese had been washed in beer or brine. The washed rind cheese family is very large and diverse, encompassing some harder alpine cheeses like Gruyere and Appenzeller, as well as many soft, stinky ones like Taleggio and Epoise de Bourgogne. One of the big determinants in the consistency of the cheese is in the moisture content. Low moisture will produce a firmer, drier cheese, whereas high moisture will yield a softer, oozier cheese. A Serious Eats article had a good description of how to identify a washed rind cheese in the wild. Quote, The telltale signs include a moist or sticky exterior, some variety of reddish-orange rind, and profound aromas, reminiscent of often unmentionable things, sweaty feet and barnyard animals figure prominently. Ulma, the cheese we're talking about today, does in fact have all three of those features. It was also washed in brine, and it used Brevibacterium linens for its fermentation. As I mentioned earlier, it's a raw cow milk cheese, and it's fairly young, only aging for two to three months. Coincidentally, Oma is aged at the caves at Jasper Hill, which is the same company that made Alpha Tolman, the cheese from episode one. I bought a quarter of a pound of Oma, which came as a wedge roughly three inches long, two inches high, and two inches wide, for about six cubic inches of cheese. The rind was a beige manila color and was moist, but not sticky. The interior was a pale yellow, almost cream color, and there were tiny pockets of air distributed throughout. It had a springy, rubbery texture when cutting into it, and a slice of it could bend easily without breaking. The best way that I can describe the aroma, well, really the odor, was dirty feet. It was not particularly pleasant. The first bite, unsurprisingly, tasted like dirty feet. The pungency was overwhelming, and I literally wanted to throw up. But I had already cut off a big chunk, so even though all of my instincts were screaming, this food is rotten, do not put it in your mouth, I had to keep going. And you know what? Here at the Otaku Fromagerie, we're all about pushing boundaries. Whether that's the ostensible boundary between fermented dairy products and Japanese cartoons, or my own personal boundaries against eating foods that make me want to vomit. But I'm glad that I pushed through, because... The next bite wasn't as bad, and by the third, I actually started to notice some other flavors. There was a nice creaminess, nuttiness, and a not unpleasant tanginess as well. The texture was also really nice. The cheese was firm enough to bite into, and then it melted in your mouth. It did also have a rather bitter aftertaste that made me want to rinse my mouth out. By the fifth bite, though, I hardly even noticed the stinky feet and even more flavors started coming through. The rind especially had a distinct earthiness and some light smokiness as well. The interior of the cheese was creamier than the outside and had a more delicate, nutty flavor. I should also acknowledge, though, that 
the first bite I took was so traumatic that I had to mentally prepare myself for every subsequent bite. And I literally flinched every time that I put a piece in my mouth because I was so scared that it would be as bad as the first one. For a beverage pairing, I wouldn't go with wine. The flavors and aftertaste of the cheese are too strong and would distort the flavors of almost any wine. Maybe a really big bodied red could punch through, but even in that case, I don't think the flavor profiles of those types of wines would go well with this cheese. In order to get something that can compete head to head with its intensity, I would look to hard alcohol, specifically a sharp rye whiskey. I think that spicy kick with just a touch of sweetness is going to be the best complement for the tanginess and pungency of the cheese. But you could also go with a light scotch if you want to draw out the smokier notes of the cheese. I think anything super peaty would be too intense, and the clear liquors, i.e. vodka, tequila, rum, and gin, are just the wrong flavor profile. If you're more of a beer person, I think most IPAs would also pair well, but I'd stay away from anything too bitter because that could be overwhelming in combination with the bitter aftertaste from the cheese. If you're looking for a non-alcoholic pairing, an interesting combination would be a cup of Lapsang Souchong tea. I think the campfire flavor of the smoked tea leaves would help draw out the darker, earthier flavors of the cheese in an interesting way. So, to conclude this section, the cheese we talked about today was Oma, a washed rind cheese from the Von Trapp farmstead. It's pungent, it's intense, it's not for the faint of heart, all of which would lead me to summarize this cheese as an acquired taste. Final recommendations. I'll start with Hollick. This show was a perfect fit for my taste, but I think it may not be for everyone. The art and animation can be jarring, and the character development can feel slow, especially without the support of a strong overarching plot. But if you're into mysterious, surrealist, psychological urban fantasy, then I think you will really like this show. If you're not into that, then you may not. Now, I'm always a little disappointed when a good story ends, but that's usually it. The ending of Holic, though, hit different, because as I said earlier, I didn't get to spend as much time with the characters as I wanted to. So, of all of the animes that I've watched, this is the first time that I actually plan on buying the manga so that I can have more time in the story and see how it plays out. Now for Oma. If you already know that you like the taste of stinky, washed rind cheeses, or you feel confident in your ability to force yourself into acquiring that taste, then there's a lot to like in this cheese. It has a great texture and a complex, interesting flavor. The challenge is getting past its bouquet, which is not the easiest thing to do. If you can, you'll be well rewarded. But if not, well, there's a whole world of gustatory adventures out there that are equally rewarding and not nearly as unpleasant. And that's it for this episode. Thanks for listening. And if you want more content like this, be sure to like, subscribe, and share with all your friends. See you next time at the Otaku Fromagerie.